man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Aren't you grateful for that? Now, we have quoted that scripture a million times, and we know that by heart. However, Paul did not stop there. He went on and he said this, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Amen. I want to talk to you for a few minutes this morning, probably mostly teaching, but I do want to talk to you on essential habits of disciple makers. Now, reconciliation is a really long word. And, you know, most of you probably know what it means, but just in case you don't know what it means, it just means when two people who are at odds are reconciled back with each other. For example, if a husband and wife, if they get into a fight, like my wife and I have never gotten into a fight, in our 25 years of marriage, everything has just always been nonstop marital bliss. But on, on those rare occasions when I'm wrong and I have to apologize, <laughs> that is called a reconciliation. Now, there are varying degrees of reconciliation. If you messed up a little bit, it's just a little bit of reconciliation that needs to happen. But if you messed up big time, it's, it's a whole lot of reconciliation that needs to be done. I learned very early on that the wrong thing to tell your wife is to calm down. I don't know why they don't like that. Women don't like when men tell them to just calm down and stop being emotional. I said that once we were early in our marriage, and I'll just say I'm just thankful to be alive today. <laughs> Reconciliation. It's kind of a fun word to say. There are songs that have been written about it. But did you know that you have been given a powerful ministry? You don't need a prophet to come and lay hands on you and pronounce that over you. Because it's there in the word of God. You have been given a ministry of reconciling people to Jesus Christ. Now, because we have been made new in Christ and ourselves have been reconciled to God, we have been given that ministry of reconciling people to Jesus Christ. That's the essence of what Paul said in those two verses. Now, this ministry is that of making disciples. Many years ago, churches often had the mindset of it's the pastor's responsibility. And that's why they stayed small. And it wasn't just in Pentecost. It was all across in multiple denominations, in many churches, all across the board. And the saints would come. And you know, a lot of that came from all this you know, church history stuff, how the Catholic church you know, would would. would, would you know, for over a thousand years, they outlawed the Bible, and they called the people that would come to the church, the Bible calls them saints, they called them laity, and even now, that word is kind of thrown around, but it means stupid, ignorant, you know, people that are, that are not as educated as the priests who, who went through the seminaries and who knew and had all the teachings, and so, so there, was, there was a mindset that we've kind of had to get rid of in Pentecost and all across, in all denominations, and it's, it's that old-fashioned mindset of, well, everything is the pastor's responsibility. Thank God we don't have that at Refuge. Thank God. But you have been given this ministry. It is your responsibility to carry out this God-given ministry to the fullest of your abilities and talents. Whatever degree of abilities and talents that you have been given if you can fix things around the church, or if you can sing, or if you can play something, or like whatever your, your, your abilities are, use them for the kingdom of God, because that is your responsibility. But we must become a church of disciple makers. We are not called to be leaders. As a matter of fact, right off the top of my head, I don't think the Bible commands us to be leaders anywhere in the scripture. But the Bible does have a whole lot to say about servanthood and about taking the lower seat and, and serving others. But most importantly, we have been given a ministry of disciple makers. Matthew 20, 19, again a familiar passage. Go ye therefore, Jesus said unto all the nations, baptizing the name of the Father, Son, Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. Even unto the end of the world, amen. You could say 
that the last will and testimony of Jesus Christ before he ascended, he has one thing left to say. And, and this, I know and later on in Acts, he, he told them to tarry in Jerusalem, wait for the promise of the Father. But, but the Great Commission was one of the very last things that was on his heart and his mind, and that was making disciples before he comes back. Well, first of all, what is a disciple? Well, first of all, it's simply someone who has been born again of the water and the spirit and is making a conscious effort to follow Jesus Christ to the best of their ability. Now, I say that because there are varying, again, this is my opinion. If you don't like it, just pray for me. But there are varying degrees of disciples. There are those that follow Jesus very closely. And there are those that kind of follow him afar off. And I can tell you that the closer you get to the Lord, the more of him you become like. And the farther away from him you are, the less of him that you have and the more of you. But So there are varying degrees of disciples. Someone once said uh, that, that there are some very practical things that we have to know in order to be a disciple maker. And here's the first one that God laid on my heart. First of all, being a disciple maker involves spending your time on people. Now, we can spend time in a particular ministry within the church, and that's all well and good. You know, you could, you could play a musical instrument. You could sing up here, be part of the praise team. You could be part of security. You could be part of all these different things. And that is all good, and that's, that's, that's ministry, no doubt about it. But what I'm talking about is spending, is, is really going beyond that. It's spending time and money on people, and that is how you make a disciple, okay? So if you're only involved in a particular church ministry and not directly involved in somebody's life, then you're not walking in all of the calling that God has for you right now at this season in your life. And because that is part of being a disciple maker. And the truth is, we're never short on having praise singers. We're never short on having people who will, you know, play musical instruments. We're never short on security people. We're never short on all the various ministers in the church. Thank God for that. But we are short of disciple makers who have put their hands to the plow. And are doing the will of God and are actively involved in somebody's life. And by somebody, you know, I don't mean necessarily your best friend at church that you've walked and known for 35 years. I mean somebody weak, somebody new, somebody that's struggling in this season right now. You know, help put your hands on the handlebars, if you will, and help them along. That's what I mean by making, being a disciple maker. Because we're called to be disciple makers. New people are like new babies. I'm sure that whenever every baby was born, that the new mother just, you know, laid it down there and said, okay, let me know when you need something. And it, by the way, it does. <laughs> Which is every second of the day. It needs something. But that new baby needs to be held. And that baby has diapers that need to be changed at 3 in the morning. Isn't that fun? And that baby wants to eat at midnight. And you got to get up, and you're tired, and you got to go to work the next day. And you've had 47 minutes of sleep. Yeah, I remember what it's like. <laughs> and I know my wife does. Thank God she was a stay-at-home mom. But whenever she got up, I got up many times. Or at least she woke me up many times. <laughs> I needed to get up. I would go get the formula, I would warm it up, and I would bring it to her. And I'd go back to sleep, and then she would, she would do her thing. And that's, 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 that's how it works in our household. But that's what being a disciple maker is. It's having babies. And guess what? Whenever you, have, whenever you are involved in people's life, the ugly truth, 
again, I'm not criticizing anything I say, but the ugly truth is that everybody wants to be involved in that person that just latches onto the gospel immediately, and they come right in, and their lives get changed, and, and, and in two weeks, bless God, it all works out. But I can tell you this, that there are some people you are going to spend years on, and, they are, and you are going to do everything within your ability to get them right and to help them along. And at the end of the day, they're going to turn around, and they're going to walk out on God, and you're going to be hurt, and you're going to wonder, why is this happening? Well, let me tell you, that's part of being a disciple maker. And I know firsthand because, you know, my wife and I can, my wife can testify to this too. There are people that we've taught Bible studies for years. And, and, and at first they did good for a little while, but, you know, they quickly faded away. And we tried our best, but they wouldn't return our calls. They wouldn't answer our texts. And that's kind of how it is when you get involved in people's life is things get ugly sometimes. And you're going to get hurt. But when you get hurt, God will heal you. And he will help you along. And this is what being a disciple maker is. If you get involved in people's life, your hands are going to get dirty. But that is the ministry of Jesus. Jesus spent more time with publicans and sinners and harlots than he ever did in the synagogues, rubbing shoulders with the Pharisees. You are called to be a disciple maker. Everybody say, I am called, I am called. to be a disciple maker. New people in Christ need tender, loving care. They need TOC, and it means spending time and that means a daily or a weekly contact outside of the church to make sure that, that they're not choking on what I call choking on a steak dinner. Sometimes in church and even over the pulpit, things are said and it's directed to people who are not new in the Lord and they're kind of at an intermediate state in their walk with God. And sometimes it's directed at people who are more mature in Christ. Sometimes entire messages are directed that way. And new people, when they hear this, can try to, you know, can try to metabolize that and can try to digest that. And they end up choking the Lord. Why did the pastor say this? I don't understand why this happened. This is where you have to be close enough to them to get involved in their lives so that they feel comfortable and confident enough to come to you and say, I don't understand why this happened. And what's happened is they're choking on a steak dinner. Because what do you give babies? Milk. You give babies milk. You don't cut up a big juicy T-bone steak. It doesn't have any teeth yet. Now, if you're still giving them formula at 19 years old, then we got a problem. At 19, they should have long since been eating a steak. Secondly, you must learn to develop friendships with them and get close enough to them that they're willing to share their struggles with you because they trust you. You have to get involved in their life. When I pastored several years ago, there was this lady, I won't know what name her name, but she, she came into the church, she had a lot of emotional problems. And, you know, Tanya and I worked with her, you know, I, I, we, we taught her some Bible studies, and it finally came to the point where she, she came to church, and she, uh, you know, she, she was willing to really come to the altar, and she really got touched from God. And so, you know, we kept loving on her, and we did everything that we could. And what, one particular, I don't know if I should be even telling this story now, but I'm going to tell you, one particular time... You know, the last thing that, that happens when, when, a, when a new person really buys in is usually the last thing they do is they start paying their tithes. And as a pastor, I know that, of course, it's not always true, but that's a gen, general principle that's always true because money seems to be the thing that people struggle with the most. And she struggled with it, like, so much. And, and she was like, you know, her, her tithes were $5. Okay. She's on disability. She has all these, so that was a big step of faith. That was fine. But she called me that Sunday afternoon, and she said, "You know, I've just been wrestling. I just can't get my mind off. I just don't know what you did with my five dollars." And uh, I, I almost said, "I well, a quick trip and a donut on the way over to church." I just about covered it. I did not say that. Thank God. That's what my flesh wanted to say. We, but but we just loved on her anyway. I don't know, a few months later, she was out of food, and so, you know, we sent some ladies over to the church to buy, like, $200 worth of groceries, and they, they bought all kinds of things. I got a phone call complaining that they, about the types of food that they bought her. It's not steak. It's not what I wanted. Now, uh, the, I'm, I'm just being honest, and I'm being open today and transparent and telling you these things because these are the things you have to deal with if you're going to be a disciple. And it doesn't mean that you have failed. Jesus had 12 disciples, and one of them was the devil. Yeah. 
You're not going to be able to save everybody. Our, our, we are not called to be soil testers. We are called to be seed planters. I can't save anybody. I can't heal a headache. I can't do anything for anybody, but I can bring somebody to the cross. I can pray for them. I can help them along or do my best to. But at the end of the day, they have to decide on their own. So you must develop friendships with them. And that means getting your hands dirty. Disciple makers, thirdly, are not selfish in search. In other words, they pray and have their devotion time in the morning and get what they need from the Lord in prayer and in the word and come ready to give when the service starts. If you're going to be an effective disciple maker, you have to come to church, pray it up with the Spirit. And filled up with the word of God. You can't come here dragging your feet all discouraged, you know, and, and say, oh man, I, 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 hope, I hope the praise team hits it today. I hope the pastor's got a good one today because I need to be picked up. And, you know, again, I'm not criticizing because I know there are seasons where we need that in our life. But generally speaking, okay, we ought to be getting on our knees in the Lord and we ought to be telling that to the God because he said, I'll be your counselor. I'll be whatever you need me to be. So I'm going to get up in the morning. I'm going to get prayed up. I'm going to get filled up with the Holy Ghost. I'm going to get my mind in the Word of God and get filled up with the Word so that when I get here to church, I'm not here to consume, but I'm here to give, and it's overflowing out of me. That's what a disciple maker is. That's why it's called a service. You are here to worship and to serve. We are not here to receive only. Or primarily. We are here to serve. We are here to serve. From Acts chapter 20 and verse 35. It says, I have showed you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak. And to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, we have relegated this to finances mostly, unfortunately. But it's, it goes way beyond finances. This goes way beyond finances because you will find that as you empty yourself into people and spend your time on people, God will fill you up to an abundance and overflowing with his spirit. And that's why a lot of people are not full and they're really not empty either. They're kind of stale. When you're neither full nor when you're not empty, that's called being stale. And that's what happens. No burden in prayer. No operation of the gifts of the Spirit in your life. Like the Dead Sea that has no outlet. Always receiving but never giving out. And so many aren't dead. They're just stale. And I think stale is the worst state to be in because Jesus called it lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. But you're lukewarm. You haven't been stirred in a while. Your burden in prayer hasn't been stirred for anybody. You haven't wept over anybody's soul. You haven't reached out to somebody and said, hey, we've been missing you at church. Or, hey, you know, I saw there was a need in your life. Let me come along and help you. It's been a while because, we, because you've been so inwardly focused that you've become stale and your burden in prayer has left you. Fourthly, uh, disciple makers will seek people out in church to pray with and to for. Now, and to pray for. You must use wisdom. You know, many years ago, I was 10 years old. I came to church, and they told me, you need the Holy Ghost. I, I, I repented. I very clearly repented. I remember the, the very moment I repented. But I had no idea what the Holy Ghost was or speaking in tongues. <laughs> and so I had all these people gathering around me telling me that I needed the Holy Ghost. And I was 10 years old. I lifted my hands. I was praying for the Holy Ghost. I had no idea what speaking in tongues was. And finally, afterwards, they said, what did you get the Holy Ghost? And I said, What's the Holy Ghost? What's the Holy Ghost? Some people need to be taught first. Not everybody that comes to church is going to get the Holy Ghost the first time they come. Why? Because it's new to them. It happens that way sometimes, but it doesn't always happen that way. Some people might come for weeks or months or even years before they get the Holy Ghost because they don't understand it and they need somebody to, you know, to get eye to eye with them over a kitchen table and to open up a Bible and, and give them a chance to answer, you know, to ask all of their questions and open the scriptures and show them where, where it talks about all this stuff and show them in the Word of God because their hearts really are hungry or they wouldn't be here, but they just need to be taught. So we must use the wisdom of God. Amen. Amen. And so, uh, so your burden in prayer will be discovered as you seek people out in church. Too often, 
In church, what happens is, again, I'm not criticizing. I'm just trying to teach you a little bit. Too often, we go to our usual list of friends. And that's those who we normally hang with while the new person prays privately or prays by themselves. Now, I know that there are times where God leads you to pray with your friends, especially when you know that they are somebody that needs to be that needs a touch from God or they haven't been there in a while. You know, the youth pray, all, that's, all, all this is wonderful and great. But you must be mindful. If you are a disciple maker, you've got your eye like a missile on that person that you've been trying to disciple, on that one person that you've been, been looking for. And you're looking for them to lift their hands. You're looking for them to make their way to the altar at some point. You're looking for them to show any sign of emotion. And when you do, you're going to go back and lay hands on them, and you're going to begin to pray with them that God helps them and pray as the Spirit gives you, uh, you know, the words to say. And God, God will bless that and help that. So disciple makers, we have to learn to seek people. People out at altars. Fifthly, disciple makers know that making disciples is a lifelong process. That means you're always looking for someone to come alongside and help. If you're not actively looking for someone to help and disciple, ask yourself, why am I not seeking somebody out at this season in my life? You may be stale or complacent. And again, I understand we're all at a different place. There are some of you that have tremendous weights and burdens in your life right now. And, and, and I am not, I'm not denying any of that, but I am telling you this. When you get involved in people's life, no matter how big your burden is, God begins to lift it. And God begins to help you along. You know, even counselors will tell people this. Professional counselors that, that counsel people that have been through tremendous trauma in their life will often tell people to go get involved in other people who are as bad or worse off. And as they begin to lift people up and help them, they realize, maybe I can get along. You know, maybe I can get along. If, if they can make it, I can too. And that's what a disciple maker does. You never retire from being a disciple maker. I remember years ago, there was an elder in our community. His name was Elder Joseph Farino. Now, his, his son was involved uh, with home missions and North American missions at headquarters for many years. But it's, it's Elder Farino's dad and that I'm talking about. And this, this guy used to be an Italian boxer before God saved him. And when God filled him with the Holy Ghost, he told me, he said... Uh, you know, God knocked me over. It was saved back in the 30s. And, and he said, the Holy Ghost hit me and it knocked me over. He was sitting on a bale of hay. Holy Ghost knocked me over and I spoke in tongues for three hours. And he said, I got up from that place and I never went to, I never went to fighting again, but I fought for the Lord. And he preached for many years, but he told me, he said, the first 30 days I had the Holy Ghost, I wore out my Bible. The pages were all falling out. And my pastor gave me an old, an old English uh, King James Bible. <clears throat> it was brand new, and I, I wore it out, flipping through it over and over, and the pages were all torn up and, and, and muddied up in 30 days. And so he had to go buy me another one because I wore it out so much. And, and that was the kind of man he was, just gave himself to prayer in the Word. And, and, and whenever he was 80, him and his wife both were... Uh, were, 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 were very elderly, and, and, but not just, not just in age-wise, but, but the years had been hard on them physically for a lot of reasons. And so he had a hard time going up and down the stairs. They had a split ranch home. And so even going down the stairs to answer the door was, was a monumental task for him. But I remember, you know, and he, even and to further illustrate how bad they were, they couldn't even go to church, although they loved going to church, but physically... They just couldn't go to church anymore. But he stayed at home, and he prayed, and he fasted, and he sought God, and he was in the Word constantly. You'd walk into his home, and you could feel the warmth of God's presence there. And I, I'll never forget how I would come to his house, and I would be sitting in his, in his living room. By the way, if you know um, Brother Victor Voltaugh, a missionary to Taiwan, that Brother Farino was Victor Voltaugh's mentor, and Brother Voltaugh will tell you that as was Elder Guy Rome, who pastored in Bridgeton for many years as well. But anyways, so, so I, would, I, would, I would go to his house, and people would, would knock on his door out of nowhere. And, and, and one particular person said, I don't know what drew me here, but I just was driving by your house, and something drew me to this place. And he, would, he prayed dozens of people through the Holy Ghost in his living room. He was a disciple maker. 
All his life, he never retired from it. He never stopped, but he kept plowing, even to the point where he couldn't physically do it anymore. He said, God, if you'll bring them to me, I'll do everything I can to pray them through. I'll be prayed up. I'll be filled up to the brim. And when they walk into this place, I'll do everything I can to pray them through the Holy Ghost. You know, I can't physically go out and drive my car to their house anymore. I can't door knock. I can't evangelize anymore. But I can do what I can for the kingdom of God. And now him and his wife have both gone on to be with the Lord many years ago. But I'll never forget Elder Frenel in his living room. Barely could he could, uh, get up out of, out of that couch. And here we are today. And, and again, please understand, I'm not criticizing. I'm just trying to help us and try to encourage us here today. But we have strength right now still. You had strength to put your keys in your car, to walk down your stairs. And although you physically may not have been... Uh, uh, debilitate or everything may not be right physically with you right now. You may be in pain, even as I'm speaking right now. It may be a difficult season in your life. But if you will get involved in God's business, God will get involved in yours. I promise you that. You say, I want to see more miracles in my life. I want to see more things happen. I want a financial blessing. I'll tell you how it happens. It happens when you open the windows of storehouses of your time, your energy, and your finances and begin to pour it into the hearts and lives of people. God will say, okay, that got my attention. And now I'm going to open up the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing. And he will do it. But if you sit and you don't ever get involved in people, and you might say, well, I'm not ready yet. You know what? If you've repented, you can disciple somebody on how to repent. And sixthly, let me ask you this. Who are you looking for when you get to church? When you come into this building, who are you looking for? Most would say friends or family, but if that's our most honest answer, then Perhaps we're just a club or a clique, and we're not really doing the business of God's church. Because we are called to be disciple makers. Whenever you're a disciple maker, you look around and you're looking for people that you've been involved with. You're looking for people that you've Bible studied. You're looking for people that you've met with throughout the week or you've called throughout the week. And you listen to them crying on the phone for two or three hours until one o'clock in the morning. And you're tired, but you're looking around for them because you love them. Because you want to make sure that they come to heaven with you. That's what being a disciple maker means. So what is God's business? God's business is that of reaching the lost. And making disciples. That's why he went to Calvary. We tend to gravitate towards those whom we know well. Our usual social gathering of people. And that's all well and fine. But we must also learn to seek out people that we're trying to help and trying to disciple. If they're not there, why are they not here? We need to not stalk them. Okay? Where were you today? It's not that kind of spirit. Or mindset. It's that of love. We missed you today. Is everything okay? Accountability is not a bad thing, but you must learn to seek people out. And when disciple makers don't just come and sit down in our seats and wait for the service to start, or worse, show up late to church and leave early and never get involved in people's life. And again, I that probably that statement probably hit some of you. It hit me too, and the Lord gave it to me. Okay, but there are habits we all have to break if we're going to be effective disciple makers. You might say, "Well, I'm an introvert. Cut me some slack." Well, sweetie, join the club because I am too. People say introvert like it's some kind of disease or something. You've heard people say it. He's just so introverted. And it's like, oh, bless his little heart. <laughs> but let me tell you this. Being an introvert is a God-given strength. It's not a weakness. Because I will tell you this. We all are on a sliding scale. Nobody is the extreme extrovert. Okay? No or very, very few people are. And nobody is or very few people are to the extreme introvert. But we all are on a sliding scale. Furthermore... The world, this may surprise you, but it's the truth. The world is led by introverts, not extroverts. Here's a list of, of leaders 
throughout history, here's the, and these are, just, these are just a few, who considered themselves, who they themselves said they were being introverts. Here they are. Albert Einstein, Rosa Parks, who started the civil rights movement and helped to organize peaceful protests. Bill Gates, Steven Spielberg, Sir Isaac Newton, who discovered the law of gravity. Abraham Lincoln, perhaps the greatest president of all time. Mahatma Gandhi, Michael Jordan, arguably the greatest athlete of all time. Meryl Streep, Elon Musk, Dr. Seuss, Eleanor Roosevelt, Warren Buffett, Barack Obama, president of the United States just a few years ago. And there are literally thousands and thousands of more people who are introverts and by nature of their introversion allowed them to focus on things which extroverts cannot always do. And so that ability to focus is your introversion side coming out, whether you realize that or not. And again, I know we're all on a sliding scale, and I'm not a doctor of psychology. But being an introvert myself, I know sometimes it's a little bit intimidating going up to people and shaking their hands that you don't know. But let me tell you this little secret that I've learned. Believe it or not, if you walk up to a new person and you shake their hand, they are not going to bite you. <laughs> and a lot of times it's just overcoming our fear. You, you know, years ago, Matt Maddox and I were here in 1995. How many were here in 95? Liberty 95. So a small handful of people, just five or six. And our job was to knock doors. Now you talk about being opposites. Matt Maddox and I, if y'all know Brother Matt Maddox, he is the extreme extrovert. I am the polar opposite. Brother Gary Morgans used to say that when Matt's in the house, we always know he's in the house. But Bill can be here all day, and we don't know he's here because I'm in the corner reading somewhere. First, first door that we knocked on, you know, Brother Gary Morgans, he, he, he took us and he trained us for a full day. He made it look so easy. It makes everything look easy. Revolve door knocking. I knocked doors. First door, this this real pretty young girl comes to the door. And by nature, in fact, I was already nervous. And that made me even double nervous. And I said, <laughs> y'all really want to know what I said now, don't you? <laughs> I said, hi, my name is Matt, and this is Bill. <laughs> oh, it gets worse. <laughs> and we're from the first Pentecostal church of Miami, Florida. <laughs> And Matt is doubled over, slapping his knee, laughing. <laughs> and my face turns as red as my wife's shirt. You know, like, what is that? I don't even know who I am right now. <laughs> but you just got to overcome your fear of people. Now, you know, this is, this is just some regular down-home teaching here, but this is the, this is the honest goodness fact. You got to get over your fear of people. And, and here's one way you can do it. Practice. And just start doing it. Go up to people that you don't know. Just say hi. Introduce yourself. Conversation will flow. I always say a little prayer to myself before I go up to somebody new and, and just talk to them. I'm praying, praying Lord, you know, help, help me to, to, you know, to, to, you know, to come across as warm and loving and inviting and, and not, not intimidating in any way. You want them most of all to feel the love of God in your heart and your spirit. That's the most important thing. And so you have to get over your fear of people. Now, if you're an extrovert, you've got no problems with that. Introverts wake up in the morning, and they have $100 in their emotional tank. And every major social interaction costs them so much money before they've got to recharge. Extroverts wake up with nothing in their emotional tank. And every, in, emo, every social interaction, they get money in their emotional tank. Luke is a prime example of an extrovert. Lane is a good example of an introvert. Lane is me. Luke is his mom. <laughs> Amen. And so there, these people that I named were, were deeply and profoundly impacted on their generations. Not by their massive people skills but by getting over themselves and stepping outside of their comfort zone, and they did it without the aid of the Holy Ghost. Let me remind you what Jesus himself said in Acts chapter 1, but you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and into the uttermost parts of of the earth because boldness is one of the traits of a spirit-filled Christian and boldness 
is what God has called us to do, not not brashness, okay, but boldness, holy boldness, okay? And there is the difference. When God called me to preach, I looked around and was like, I know you're not talking to me. Guys, I couldn't even hardly speak to somebody without new, without getting nervous. And I'm still not in that Mr. Extroversion. But I will tell you this, by the power of the Holy Ghost, he enables me to do what I need to do, what he has called me to do. And when, so whatever ministry God has called you to do, he has put gifts and abilities and skills inside of you to do that according to his will. And some of you have abilities and skills that God has given you, and you're using some in some ways, but you're not using them to the fullness of all that God wants you to do. And I'm here to tell you that there is a powerful ministry of reconciling people to God and being a disciple maker that awaits you if you will commit yourself to this. And so we must never forget that while we are in the Father's house and things may be going well for us right now, there are people with real needs who need somebody to give them a friendly word of hope or an encouragement and just to be a friend. Furthermore, we must never forget that that whatever it is we are going through, however painful that season may be, someone is going through something bad or worse. And when we reach out to carry somebody else's burden, you will find that yours gets a lot lighter because God is carrying yours. Romans 7 and verse 15, sorry, Romans 15 and verse 1. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us Please his neighbor for his good to edification. This is the seventh point. Making disciples involves looking for those who are at a weak and vulnerable time in their life and helping them over that burden. It means spending time and money on people. Now, some tend to think that our time, talent, and ministry and finances belong only to the church. And if we're spending it there and there only, then we've done our due diligence. However, if we only bring it into the church, then we're missing out on all that God wants uh, to do in us and through us. When was the last time, if you are or were able, that you reached out to somebody with a financial need to help them? Remember the story of the Good Samaritan. Everybody else went by on the other side of the road. The priest hardly was even looking for somebody in the ditch. I got to get to church. I'm a priest. I'm important. I got a, I got a sermon I've got to prepare for. I got a sermon I got to deliver. And somebody else walked by. They were probably going to the same place. I got to get to church. I'm on the praise team. I'm on the security team. I'm on this team or that team. I've got to get to church. And while we're going to church, we're not always mindful of the good Samaritan that God, you know, pushes right past our way. And God has called us to open and expand our minds and our visions. Thank God the good Samaritan didn't tell the man who was broken and bruised on the side of the road that he just gave all the money he had into the synagogue and didn't have anything left for him. And thank God the good Samaritan was looking for broken people outside of the church and was willing and able to assist. God will never give us more spiritual babies than we can as a church adequately and practically mother. He will never do it. If we want great revival, we have to be willing to be great disciple makers. If we want a, a monumental, massive revival that will impact our community and liberty, then we have to be willing to be monumental, massive disciple makers that are willing to pour themselves, ourselves in to people, to teach Bible studies, to put our hands to the plow, to the work of the ministry, to, uh, you know, to go and and buy somebody groceries that you know is going through a hard time, or pay somebody's bills, or buy somebody a car if you're financially able to do that, or whatever it is you can do to make somebody, a, I don't know, a bat of cookies or brownies, so whatever cheers them up that day. This is disciple-making. It ain't spiritual very much, but it's the work of the ministry of Jesus Christ, and that is what we have to be mindful to do. Let me ask you this. Who is God calling you to come alongside today or during this season? Because the weaker and lesser members are still part of his body. Therefore, when you do it unto the least of these, you have done it unto the Lord Jesus himself. Furthermore, God has not called us to be soil testers. 
Jesus said in John 4, I say not you there yet four months, and then comes the harvest. And behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are wide already to harvest. Lift up your eyes. That means that there were disciples, you know, that were kind of looking down. But Jesus said, look, look out. Look out in the fields. It's all around you. It's everywhere you go. It's at the gas station whenever you stop to get gas. That young lady that you're going, you know, that you're handing that money to could have just been, could have just been through the worst time of her life. And she needs somebody to give her hope, even if it's just a God bless you and God loves you. You know, you know that person, you know, that you're going through the checkout line with at the grocery store and you've been waiting for a long time and you're a bit agitated now she realizes that you're agitated she knows that and and the kind of vibe that you're putting out may not be a vibe that God wants you to you know but if I can show the love of God everywhere I go if I can if I can demonstrate the love of God because he found me when I was just like them he found me even in a worse state and some of us were worse some of you have been there before and some of us were young enough in the Lord to remember what it was like to be without hope and without God in this world and we've got to realize that everybody we come across in our lives on a regular day-by-day basis is hurting and broken and bleeding and need a word of hope. Everybody. Amen. There was, there was a young man many years ago whenever I first accepted the call to preach. And you know, I, didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. 19 years old, Brother Owen preached from, from Genesis 22, the story of you know, Abraham offering his son and you know, I've, I've been fighting the call to preach for a while, and finally I just said, okay, God, I'll preach. And when I did that, I felt such a peace just wash over me. And I wasn't anxious, wasn't nervous about it anymore. I just knew that that's what God wanted me to do. I didn't even know how I was supposed to, I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. So I waited, and just a few months went by. There was a young man in the church that had been coming, and uh, all, the, all the young people sat on one side, he always sat to the left. If you've been to New Life in Bridgeton, there are three sections. He sat to the left and to the back, which is kind of where nobody sat. That's where he sat. Furthermore, I'm just going to be honest with you, okay? He, he stunk. And his clothes were wrinkled, and he didn't have it together in the slightest. But, but he came a few Sundays. And finally, one Sunday, I came out to him, and I just put my arm around him. He was back there kind of praying to himself. And, and I, I just put my arm around his shoulder and, and just, you know, said it was... Probably wasn't very, very spiritual. There were no gifts of the Spirit operating in me at that moment. I was just trying to pray for somebody. And, uh, and I noticed he was crying. And so, you know, long story short, I got a Bible study. I found out that his mom had committed suicide, and he was in a bad place. He was living with his sister, and he had a crummy job that he didn't like, and he was real depressed, and he had all these problems. But I'll never forget how, you know, I went to his house consistently, and I taught him that Bible study, and we would meet for dinner, and I would look for him at church on Sunday mornings. And I'll never forget the Sunday night that came along, and we had a Sunday night service, and my hand was on his head, and I leaned in, and I could hear him weeping and speaking in tongues as the Spirit of the Lord gave the utterance. I remember that that night he was baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm here to tell you today that he's... He, he's He's still in the truth, you know, over almost 30 years, over 30 years later. He's got a wife. He's got little girls now. They're serving the Lord. They're involved in their local church. Now they're making disciples. This is what I'm talking about. You can't look at somebody and decide what kind of Christian they're going to be. You can't say, well, they stink or they don't have it all together or they're not this way. They're not that way. Hey, they may not even be straight. They may be in a same-sex relationship, but we are not called to be soil testers. We are called to be seed planters. Seed planters, you don't know what kind of Christian they're going to be. You might be letting somebody down through a basket on one side of the wall. You know, those guys had no idea who it was. They didn't know that that was the great Apostle Paul who would write one-third of the entire New Testament and bring the gospel to the Gentile world. All they knew is that there was somebody in this basket, and he's a Christian, and we got to be careful. So we got to be careful about with new people, and we got to love them, and we got to pray with them. And we got to help them along. And not just new people. I'm not talking about just new people. I'm talking about people that may not even come yet. So being a disciple maker means investing in people. And that means giving your life away. It means investing in people who are going to turn on you and hurt you. But that's the burden of being a disciple maker. I am quickly running out of time. And I've got to get to my last and final point. <clears throat> and this is the most important thing. Being a disciple maker means you tell 
your testimony. I want to I show you something here. You may disagree with me at first, but as I elaborate on this point, I think you'll agree with me. We have an unspoken theology among us. And the theology is that when I come to God, it doesn't matter what kind of sin I have. If the cross is here and I face the cross, you know, and I come to the Lord, he fills me with the spirit. I get baptized. My sins are washed away. From that moment forward, it doesn't matter what I did in the past. On this side of the cross. But on the other side of the cross, we think that the blood works differently. That if I sin here, that somehow there's something wrong with me. Or I wasn't prayed up enough. Or I wasn't this enough or that enough. And as a result, there are many that have made very big mistakes in the church. And many of them have never came back to church because they have a mindset that the blood works differently. I messed up my calling. I messed up my life. Life is not the way it should be with me because I repented on that side of the cross and I came on this side of the cross and somehow things work differently now. But let me tell you something that the great, that the great apostle John said in 1 John 1, 9. He said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is one word there that you cannot pass over. You need to circle it in your Bible. And it is the word we. John wrote that. Remember, this was the great apostle John. This was the guy that was sitting at the foot of the cross of the Lord Jesus himself that saw the teachings of Jesus Christ. He was right there. He'd seen him face to face. He said, I was an eyewitness. I saw the blood and the water come out of his side. I saw when they pierced him. I saw when Joseph of Arimathea begged for his body and put incense there. I saw him be resurrected. I saw his resurrected body. But he said, if we confess our sins, he included himself. And you know what? If the great apostle John can say, if, if, if I sin, when I sin, he's faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness, then I know that that I can, I'm, I've got to be big enough to say that as well. I've got to be big enough to say I messed up. I said I did something wrong. And we have got to be big enough not to judge those among us who do. Your testimony is not a point of failure. It is a point of failure until you bring it to Jesus. And when God forgives you, you know what it turns into? A point of grace. It's not a failure anymore. Because from God's perspective, it never even happened. So it doesn't become your failure anymore. It becomes a point of grace. Let me teach you this from Romans 10 and verse 11. For the scripture says, whosoever believeth on him shall not be, what is that word? What's the last word? Shall not be, say it loudly, say it, ashamed, say it again, shall not be ashamed. We are ashamed many times of the things that we have done after we have come to the Lord. Mistakes that have been made. Marriages that have crumbled. You know, things that we did to mess up our life and mess up our ministry. Don't be ashamed of your past mistakes because they've been forgiven and they are under the blood. So tell your story because the blood works on both sides of the cross. Every failure of man that's been covered and forgiven is an opportunity for the grace and mercy of God to shine through in our life. Because liberty needs to know that this is not a church of perfectly religious people. But we've made mistakes, and Jesus took our mistakes, and he turned them into points of grace. This is a true story. <clears throat> I'm almost done. I just need a few more minutes. There was a reporter many years ago from the small town of Fayetteville, Maine. Her name was Nettie, Nettie Mitchell. And she knew the woman to whom this story that I'm about ready to tell you appertains to. Now this, this story was, was told way back in the late 70s. <clears throat> so I'm sure this reporter has long since gone. And she was an, an older lady herself. But she knew this woman whose name was Emmeline. And, and the story goes like this. The time is in the early 1840s in a small mill in rural Massachusetts was hiring young girls. And they were hiring young girls to come off their farm and work in these mills. And, you know, again, 
women in those days didn't work. It didn't, they didn't do that. So the women would keep a portion of the money and the rest would go back to the farm. And, and as I said, it was a time when women normally did not have this opportunity to work and to make money. There was this young girl named Emmeline. She was 13 years old. She went down to work in one of these mills. And, and Emmeline came from a very impoverished family. Very, very impoverished. As a matter of fact, when she was just 13 years old, a businessman from Lynn, Massachusetts, showed up at their house, her house. And when he saw the poverty the family was living in, <clears throat> he made the offer to young, sweet Emmeline to come and work for him in a cotton field. And at first, she was very efficient and hardworking. And most people, however, were very unfriendly to her. And again, this pertains to the fact that she was young. She was a female as well, <clears throat> and so they did not take kindly to that. But there was a very young boss <clears throat> who became friendly to her and, and, and made advances towards her, and by the time she was 14, Emmeline was the mother of his child. And she didn't dare to let others know back home what had become of her for fear and for shame. So the people where she was staying made arrangements to sell her child as soon as it was born to a childless couple nearby who would pray, who would pay for Emmeline's expenses to go back home. And so Emmeline had her baby at a very young age of 14 years old and tearfully sold it and then returned home and kept everything a secret. Now, Emmeline was a very beautiful girl, the story says, but from that time forward, shunned all the handsome men in her area. As you can understand, of course, why. Soon she turned 30 and still unmarried, and many began to talk and wonder why she didn't respond to anyone. None of the you know, young, handsome suitors in her area seemed to be a fit for young, beautiful Emmeline. Finally, the years rolled by, and in her early 30s, a young man came to board at her home. He was 17 years old. And while he was uh, building highways, he would be there and he would stay at her home. You know, she... You know, again, in, in, in those days, women weren't really allowed to work, and so she had to make a living where she could, so she would rent out a room to, to men who would work nearby on the highways. And he began to be very friendly towards her, and although she was very many years older than her, they both soon fell madly in love and soon married and built a little cottage nearby. And they were married for less than a year when his parents wrote to them and said, we heard that you're married and we're going to come and pay you a visit. And so they came down from Massachusetts. And when they came down to their horror, they discovered that he had married his own mother. And so the marriage was immediately annulled and broken up, and they parted ways. But the indignation from the community that she had an illegitimate child and had concealed it all these years was considered a horrible sin. And the fact that she had married illegitimately, she became extremely ostracized in that little community. And she was forbidden to go near her home or anyone else's. And even though there was several little churches nearby that were within just a wagon's wheel drive, none of them reached out to her. Nobody ever spoke to her. Nobody went by her home. Only every once in a while there was, there was a kindly gentleman or a kindly lady every once a few, two or three years would go by and pay her a visit to see how she was and stay but for a moment. But she was forbidden to go near the town. And the years rolled by and the years turned into decades as she was ostracized and living by herself. And she made a living out of gardening, so they say. And many years later, when she was older and weaker and on into her 80s, a severe winter came to that town. The press wrote about it. And it's a historical fact that it was well below zero degree temperatures almost every day of that freezing ice cold winter. And it's said that everything was frozen the entire winter and being ostracized and left by herself, she became extremely and deathly ill. So winter came and went and one spring day, a gentleman who had, you know, through the years occasionally dropped in to see her decided to stop by as he was passing by her house to see how he was, how she was. He knocked and there was no answer. And after several minutes of knocking, he began to be worried and so he allowed himself in. And when he did, he saw an old 
an elderly woman that was skinny to the bone, frail and half naked, laying helplessly on that cold, icy floor of her house where she was lived. And later, not just, just a few hours later, she would pass away. But later, when they looked through her house and found no food at all to eat, no, no food for, no wood for a fire, just by herself all alone, she had literally starved herself to death. They put her body in a skinny wooden box, and several who during her lifetime would not come to visit or help her were suddenly there at the last at her funeral. Her sister, who came to the funeral, placed one hand on her casket in front of the entire crowd, and the other hand held high in the air and yelled these last words, at last she has paid for her sin. And then the story goes on. Alone and by herself, she never visited the local church, although it was just a walk away for fear of being shunned, for fear of her past mistakes, for fear of her lifestyle and of not being accepted or loved. And I tell you this, that there are many people in this church right now that have tremendous testimonies and stories of mistakes that you made that you have never told anybody and you haven't told anybody because you think that there's embarrassment or shame or that people are going to shame you, that you're going to be embarrassed. But I'm here to tell you that your past mistakes are not failures. They are points of grace. We have to get rid of a culture of perceived Pentecostal perfection. That when the community looks at us and they come in and they see us with our ties and our well-dressed and all of our little girls are dressed up like princesses and all of our little boys have on bow ties, again, nothing wrong with that at all. But they look at us and they don't look like that and they don't know what they're doing and they don't know how to worship God and they've never felt the Spirit of God before and they don't know how to respond and they feel out of place because they're thinking, I am not like that and I could never be like that. It's a culture of perceived Pentecostal perfection, and we've got to wipe it off the board. We want this church, we want this community to know that we were just like that. Some of us were just like that. Some of us had babies very early. Some of us were alcoholics. Some of us were drug addicts. Some of us were adulterers and wife beaters, but such were some of you. We have been cleansed. We have been washed. We have been forgiven, and we're not here to point a finger at anybody. I hear the sound of abundance of rain, but you know what? It might be with mentally challenged people. I hear the sound of abundance of rain, but it might be with liberals or with LGBTQs. I hear the sound of abundance of rain, but it's going to be people that don't dress like us and don't talk like us and don't look like us and don't know what our little Pentecostal subculture is going to look like. They don't even know that they're supposed to raise their hands, but they need somebody that's going to get along with them in a living room and say, let me tell you what I did. And what I did was just like what you did. And if he saved me, if he put my life together, I know he can do the same for you. So culture of perceived Pentecostal perfection. This generation, especially Generation Z, is looking for transparency, not hypocrisy. They want to be real. They want us to be real, because real problems are an opportunity for a real Jesus Christ. We've all heard people say, man, if I came to church, lightning would strike me. What they're saying is, I don't fit in there. That's a culture of perceived perfection. While the world is blind, and Brittany, you can come now. While the world is blind, lost, and looking for a real Jesus Many in the church have become a narcissist hypocrite in love with our own perceived image of perfection and refusing to admit our mistakes. And as such, we rob the world of both our testimony of how we overcame through his blood and our story of how the grace of God worked in us when we didn't deserve it either. We must be careful lest we get the spirit of the Pharisees who brought that adulterous woman to the feet of Jesus, but not for mercy, but for judgment. We must be careful. 
as this world gets worse. That we don't look out, look down our noses at the world and think, man, look at how bad the world is. Look at how awful those people are. I can't believe they did that. I can't believe they're doing that. You know what? If the state of the world surprises you, with all due respect, you have not been reading your Bible. Our mantra must be, as we stand, and such were some of you. Know ye not that the unrighteous should not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor feminine, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. You've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. We are living in the year 2022. I have no idea what lies ahead. Not the foggiest clue. And believe it or not, you probably don't either. You can try to predict, you don't know. But I do know this. Past generations before the turn of the century in the 1900s were required to hold fast that which you had because of great persecution that came on the church from the time that it was conceived in an upper room on the day of Pentecost until Pentecostalism began to spread again in Western society at the Azusa Street Revival in the early 1900s. Many of them were died, died in ways that I won't even mention. They were burned at the stake. And, and many were beheaded. And all they could do was hold fast that which they had. But my friends and brothers and sisters, we are not being called to hold fast and toe the line. We are being called to go all out and sell out because we are living in the last of the last days. We are getting ready to hear a great sound of a trumpet. It's going to sound, it's going to wake the living dead. But before that happens, we have to be involved in the work of disciple making. And lastly, 1 John 5 and 19 the Apostle John ended his epistle with one of the last things he said was this, and we know that we are of God and the whole world lieth in darkness. The contrast here is that just as we are in Christ, so the world is in the wicked one or under his power. As much as we are in the light and as much as we are in Christ, they are in the power of the wicked one. And that doesn't mean that we look down our noses at them. It means that we've got a burden to pray. It means that we've got to look at this verse and we've got to look at it and consider it until we've got tears of compassion that are flowing down our cheeks. And we can pray and we can intercede for souls. Amen. Maybe like you've never interceded before. The whole world lies in wickedness. Pray until this verse burdens your heart to reach a lost and a dying world. And then go make disciples. Let's lift our hands right now to the Lord. Come on, let your voices out for a moment. Come on, let your burden out for a little bit this morning. I want to go make a disciple. I don't want to be indifferent to the cause of Christ. I want him to stir me up today like maybe I've never been stirred before. If you're here today and you want to commit to that, would you just come down and find a place to talk to God? Thank you, Jesus.